Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm Andrea Fuentes, and I work for L.A. Opera Connect, the community engagement arm of the L.A. Opera. And today I'm joined by Dr. Shauna L. Redman, professor of musicology and African-American studies at UCLA. She is an interdisciplinary scholar of music, race, and politics, and she is the author of Anthem, Social Movements and the Sound of Solidarity in the African Diaspora, which is described as an interdisciplinary cultural history that tracks the songs that organized the modern Black world. She also has a forthcoming book in January 2020 titled Everything Man, The Form and Function of Paul Robeson. Um, Shauna, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So today we're talking about La Boheme. And if I can, I just wanted to start with a sort of short anecdote about La Boheme. And that is that a friend of mine recently called me and said, you know, she's not an opera goer. And she thought, you know, what should I see this season? I'm not, I don't see opera. Like, what do you recommend? And I immediately thought of La Boheme. It starts our season. It's got this sort of timeless romance thing that happens that's very engaging. I personally just a big fan of Puccini. And that's what I told her. I'd go and see La Boheme. It's a great starter opera, I think is the term that I used. <laughs> and so after I hung up with her, I immediately thought, you know, we're also doing Magic Flute. We also have this icon, Renee Fleming, coming for Light in the Piazza. We also have three MacArthur Genius Grand award winners coming to collaborate for Eurydice. And that is just in the first part of the season. But I still, you know, and it's not an either or situation, but I still thought it's this great access point for opera if you're not somebody who is into opera necessarily. And I was wondering, you know, what makes, in your opinion, like a great access point into opera? That's a great question. I have to admit that I myself am not um, the most fluent in opera myself, um, having been just a recent kind of fan within the last decade or so in trying to get my bearings into what seems like in the study of music, something that is kind of predominant in people's thinking that to be a serious scholar or aficionado of music, one should have the um, kind of chops to speak to the question of opera or to the catalog presented through opera. But I think that part of what makes a compelling entry point for people is feeling as though they'll see themselves reflected there, right? That there are stories being told within the productions that actually can access something that feels familiar or feels um, crucial to them, feels um, central to how they understand themselves in the world. And so I think La Boheme does that through a number of different factors that I'm sure we'll get into, but not least of which for it being a love story, right? Everyone loves a love story. And we see that on our um, theater screens all the time, right? That movie after movie after movie is made around themes that La Boheme very readily demonstrates. And so I think that um, your advice to your friend was wise. <laughs> Thank you. Um, since you you brought up the, the characters, I have always, I mean, I love Mimi. I've always loved the character interactions. And especially, I think we're, we're talking partially about the adaptations of La Boheme and how it sort of lends itself to being adapted. And is part of that, do you think that we identify with these characters or is part of it what the characters are going through socially? Is it that that is just part of the story? I mean, how do you think of the characters as being part of our own identities? I think that the characters absolutely are people with which we can identify. Um, and it doesn't mean that we necessarily face 
face identical circumstances or um, demonstrate identical feelings of relation to the other characters in the production or to the world, but that they draw something out in us. So Mimi, for example, as someone who is deeply invested in finding love, has found love but struggles to keep love and is also then dealing with very real kind of devastating circumstances in her personal life outside of the relationship, trying to hold all of those pieces together, I think is something that all of us can identify with, whether we've suffered significant illness or not. All of these things begin to reflect on real life circumstance. And I think that the strongest artworks just in general, whether it be theater, film, stage, whatever, actually do that work. They draw us into that world because there's an automatic kind of entry. They can pull a piece of us onto the stage with those characters. And I think that Mimi is one of the central elements of the opera that actually makes that possible. And do you think that we see particular tropes of characters? We run a program here, for example, where um, we invite a bunch of senior centers to come and watch the final dress rehearsal. It's coming up on September 12th. And um, representatives came and our special projects manager was talking about La Boheme. And she said, you know, she put up the Big Bang Theory to talk about this kind of like trope of characters. And she put up a Friends thing. And it was just this, I'm sorry to my generation, but I've not watched Friends. Mm. So I may be the only one. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that there is this, is it a, is it a, something that we identify just with as like, oh, that's my friend and that's what makes it interesting? Or do you think that it's what the characters are going through themselves and that it's this sort of idea of of the struggle, of the artist struggle or of the struggle of certain classes that makes it appealing? I think that the class element is super huge, particularly with this production. People, particularly in these moments recently where we've, we've uh, withstood and survived a number of different recessions, And people, of course, every single day are struggling with their own localized recession or job loss or um, limited resource issue. And so I think that 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 is one of the things that's most compelling to me about Lab OM is this class element. People seeing a group of individuals who are struggling to maintain a sense of self, struggling to maintain that piece of themselves that actually makes them feel connected to the world, which for many of these characters is their arts practice, whether they be poets or musicians, that wanting to hold on to those dreams, even in those moments where it is materially impossible or at best difficult, I think is something that we can identify with and is something as an educator that I really struggle with or with many of my students, students who are saying, I want to be a poet or I want to be a musician, but I have to get a job, right? I have to be able to sustain myself. And so there are certain timeless elements that are already demonstrated within the opera, but thinking about them as a collection of friends um, and as tropes that we might see in other popular culture realms, absolutely. I think we recycle many of these um, identities, many of these struggles into many of our culture cultural formats, and it's because they work. It's because they sell in a commodities market, but also because, again, they are able to reach people where they are, that there is an access point because we know these characters because they exist in our real lives. And so do you feel like that's part of what makes La Boheme so adaptable to different, you know, geography, different time periods? I know that there was a production you know, in South Africa because of the tuberculosis, you know, arising in their community. Um, I recently read about Opera Bastille in 2017, actually did La Boheme 
um, in outer space. And I'm not sure what the commentary is there, having not seen it. But I mean, I, I would certainly be interested in what the what the commentary was for mm-hmm. oppression in outer space. Maybe mm-hmm. there is one. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is what makes it so changeable as opposed to saying we take, you know, Rosen Cavalier and put it in a different setting? Like, is that what makes it possible? Is the sort of commonality among it? Or is there something else there? Yeah, no, I definitely think that's a huge part of it, that there are things that we can readily identify with that everyone knows economic struggle. Everyone knows the desire to be loved and to love oneself. Everyone knows how we have to struggle around maintaining and developing our friendships. Everyone knows how they've been supported by friends. Everyone knows the types of intricacies that come with managing a friend's relationship or being a friend to a friend in those moments of despair or distraughtness. Um, So I think that there are many, many elements present in this opera that actually lend itself really, really well to adaption. So we've seen it adapted in places like the film Moonstruck from the 1980s, as well as those productions that you mentioned, the Bastille, as well as multiple stagings actually in South Africa, I was was recognizing. And one of which was um, produced in 1997, which is just a couple of years post um, democratic elections in South Africa after the end of apartheid. And the setting for the staged production was two weeks before the Soweto uprising in 1976. So you have these opportunities to stage La Boheme in these different historical scenes, but they make perfect sense because we know that we're on the verge of something big throughout the opera. And it lends itself very, very well to thinking about these impending future historical ruptures like the Soweto uprising and being able to recognize how class dispossession, how wealth dispossession, how the struggles around love and intimacy transcend location, transcend time, um, and are able to really reach audiences in many corners of the world. So in that sense, do you think that there is a political aspect to La Boheme? Absolutely. I think being able to tell the stories of dispossessed peoples always has a political element. And by dispossessed, I mean people who have been removed from the rights and privileges that are meant to be accorded to every human being in this country, in the world. Being able to tell the stories of people who are economically disenfranchised, being able to tell the story of people who are ill or differently abled. All of those things are inherently political because you're telling stories that work against the grain of the normative, that work against the grain of the mainstream. So even if there's not a spectacular political moment, right, anyone's soliloquy around protest or rights, you still have these stories that are telling deeply personal but still yet significantly um, social stories about the world in which we live and the things that must change, whether it's implicit or explicit. I read um, an article not too long ago about how Mimi is maybe seen as a victim. And I'm not sure that I ever saw her that way. I mean, certainly a victim of circumstance, but, you know, does she embody victimhood? Mm -hmm. And does that sort of play into how we look at the characters as, you know, especially when we change their settings and we change their backdrops, does that have to be part of the commentary that, you know, not necessarily do you think is she a victim, but 
that we have to portray her or or any of the characters in that way in order to make the commentary? Or is it, you know, just part of a broader sense of what happens in the world? I, I think it's it's more the latter. I do think that people being disadvantaged is quite often documented in kind of the common sense as victimhood, right? When in fact, part of the political significance of pieces like this is really seeing how disadvantaged people live lives that are meaningful. Like there's a politics there that's really important to pay attention to. And again, they may not be in the streets fighting the revolution. They may not be making grand statements about structure and about democracy and about disadvantage. But the fact that these people are first being staged as significant members of our society, as people with stories to tell, but are secondly living lives that are meaningful, are generative, um, are passionate, those things matter. And they actually become politicized for audiences in ways that are subtle and not so subtle. Um, So I do think it's important to kind of think beyond a victim kind of um, hero binary, because those aren't always going to be the stories we tell. Sometimes the heroes don't exist at all, because that's not real life, that people are contradictory, and we live very complicated lives, and it's not always going to be that simple. Um, And I think in a story like La Boheme, it's really important to pay attention to the possibilities of the women being differently or uniquely disadvantaged in relationship to the male characters in the opera. And we want to pay close attention to kind of gender analysis and how these women are positioned. But I think the victim kind of paradigm too often forecloses seeing really deeply into the energies and kind of investments of the women characters. And I think it's important that we pause with them and give them the opportunity to speak in ways that may otherwise be silenced. Could you tell me a little bit more about the the gender paradigms that you were just talking about? Yeah, so I've also similarly seen commentary on La Boheme that positions Mimi in particular as someone who's just a victim of circumstance, someone who is enacted upon rather than enacting in or with. And I think um, there's some element of that, right? You have her kind of centrally figured as uh, perhaps the most tragic of the characters in the opera, in part because of her untimely demise. But I do think that There are also other types of evidences that can be read into her character portrayal that gives us a different kind of um, vantage on thinking through women's role in society, women's role in relationship to kind of localized communities of struggle, um, because she quite often becomes kind of the animating element within this group of individuals. She's often offering commentary. She's providing um, kind of translation for other events that are happening amongst the group. And so she becomes a bit of a sage amongst that collection and is documenting much of what's happening there while also still modeling um, someone who is working toward a resilience in her relationship, even as her body is failing her. Um, and so I think that there are other types of readings. And it's not to say that we always have to work toward some kind of emancipatory reading for our women characters. They're not always going to be the political 
heroines that we want to see, the political heroes that we want to see. But again, that's real life. Everyone is not always that. We need to be able to give people, give characters the space to kind of breathe and give us uh, as detailed a perspective of their persona and relationship to the world as possible before kind of falling so easily into the victim, non-victim kind of binary. So I guess the most well-known adaptation then of La Boheme would be Rent, mm-hmm. right? Um, where there's, they introduce, you know, homosexuality. It's now in New York City. And instead of tuberculosis, Mimi has HIV or AIDS, um, which is a result of heroin. And in that setting, you know, we're saying definitely that this is a result of something she did. For me, it sort of brings up the issue of are we looking at her as being implicit in her own demise? And what does that mean in terms of how we view substance abuse? You know, like somebody might say she's a victim of substance abuse and and other people would say, well, she's done it to herself. Mm-hmm. And does that then create a broader conversation about victimhood and about how we look at people? And, you know, what conversations do we then have because she is or is not responsible for tuberculosis. She is or is not responsible for, you know, and it's it's an impossible question to answer, I think, is what I'm asking you. But sure. what what do you think? I think there's, there's the possibility there for a different type of reading. I mean, I think first I would say that part of what's interesting about that adaption and Mimi's contraction of HIV AIDS is first really important to consider in that moment of the 1990s and to consider that she has contracted this disease through drug use when so much of the conversation leading up to that point was about it being a sexually transmitted disease and particularly one that has stigmatized gay and queer communities. And so I think that that adjustment is first something we need to pay attention to, that it's not sexually transmitted, that it's transmitted through addiction. And that begins to kind of adjust and um, bring some kind of implicit commentary, uh, political commentary to the overwhelming common sense leading up to that moment about how HIV AIDS was spread and who were the kind of uh, victims of it, right? Which, again, was still primarily located amongst gay men. Um, So I think that's really important to note. But then I think as far as Mimi's relationship to having contracted the disease in Rent, you know, part of it is there are multiple different ways in which common sense is being adjusted through Rent, or I think should be in our readings of it. There's both the relationship to the gay community and how it's contracted, but also thinking about addiction, um, not as a criminal enterprise, but as a medical enterprise, right? That addiction is a medical concern. And this is, again, a group of economically disadvantaged individuals who no doubt are struggling to find adequate medical care in the face of this looming epidemic, right, that has ravaged various communities within the United States and across the globe. And so to think about this as one that is absolutely about addiction and should be considered as such, right, because this is also a moment where you start to see more um, clean needle campaigns and things like that that are not seeking to criminalize use of heroin and other intravenous drugs, but is meant to actually, in the process of of healing in the process of um, assisting people with their addiction, making it safe to 
to use, making it safe to use as they're looking toward alternatives, right? As we're encouraging people to stop using. Um, In the meantime, until you get to that point, you need to be using safely. And so having that kind of relationship happening all at the same time, I think is part of what makes rent so profound is that they're challenging us to think about all of these things at the same time, to not criminalize, to not stigmatize, to actually think in really complicated ways about how people come to live the lives that they lead. Mimi, in this instance, then opens up the opportunity for a lot of dialogue. And I think this is this is what our best stories do, that they open up the opportunity for us as critically thoughtful individuals to really challenge each other about how we interpret that moment, how we interpret that character. Is she just an addict who brought this on herself? There's an entirely different reading, right? That there are circumstances that lead people to abuse and we need to address those circumstances rather than criminalizing the response to those conditions. And I think LaboM opens that up. Rent definitely opens that up. And that's, again, what the best art does. It gives us space to discuss and debate. And that is is one of our primary kind of charges as people who are invested in these arts productions. I know that you are currently writing or have written a book that's coming out about Paul Robeson, Mm -hmm. who I only knew about as a child because my mother was in love with Old Man River. And that was really my knowledge about Paul Robeson. But we had recently talked a little bit about how he was not singing in opera. Would you talk a little bit about that and and why that is and how that sort of plays into the conversations that we're having now, Mm -hmm. um, specifically when we have the Central Park Five happening, we've got Blue happening and American Soldier happening Mm -hmm. and all of these great operas that are now coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So if we think about Paul Robeson, he's someone who had a 40-year career, which started roughly in 1925, ending in 1965 when he officially retired. And so during that period of kind of arts productivity and what the concert stage looked like, he didn't have these opportunities that we're now seeing. I think the Central Park Five opera is a perfect example of that. These stories that are actually taking real life events that are differently impactful to communities of color um, and staging them for broad audiences. We might think also of the Move opera that was being staged in Philadelphia a couple of years ago, um, Toshi Regan's Parable of the Sower opera, um, which is based on Octavia Butler's book. Um, All of these things that are now making it possible for us to differently see into communities. Had those opportunities been available to him, I think he readily, happily would have jumped at them and participated in them. But he made comments over the course of his career about not singing opera because opera was not a form that he recognized as a speech-making form, that he wanted to sing songs like Old Man River as he adjusted it over the course of his career, like songs like um, The House I Live In, Joe Hill, all of these songs that carried deeply felt kind of prescient messages inside of them. He wanted to use his singing as political speech and was very invested in that throughout his career. And he did not see opera as that opportunity both in part for the types of stories that opera was canonically already telling, but also for the fact that the technique and form itself did not lend itself to the types of presentations that he was making at the time, which was anywhere from the Carnegie Hall stage, which would have been more accommodating, but also all the way to seeing 
singing a cappella in the beds of pickup trucks at rallies, right, which would not have quite been conducive to singing in an operatic form. So he made this very clear distinction in his interviews between the types of singing he was interested in and the operatic tradition. But I think that there are ways in which he kind of dipped and dabbled in that form, making it mean something differently for his audiences. So for example, he sung Oasis and Osiris, um, but he sung it in English, not in the German from the magic flute, right? And in part, he did that to make it accessible to people, but also to make it mean something differently in his own technique and delivery. And so I think that there were ways that he was already borrowing from those forms, adjusting them as he was a master of doing, um, as he adjusted Old Man River, in order to make it meaningful for the audiences with whom he was speaking. And that's how he saw it as a dialogue. He was not performing for, he was speaking with. And so to the extent that he could make operatic forms, he could make operatic songs do that work, he did that and was very, very successful in it. But overall had a very kind of tenuous relationship to that form, even as he very much respected its performers. I wish that I, I, I got to go look that up. Are there recordings? I need to hear there that. There is a recording. Okay, yeah, yes, absolutely. And he was, you know, very good friends with Marian Anderson. And so those relationships between Black art performers in this moment were very clear, were very jovial, were very intimate, but their approaches as she's breaking the color bar with the Met in 1955, he's had his passport revoked. He's an enemy of the state. This is happening at the very same time, right? So people are negotiating. And sometimes that negotiation comes out in the form of music that they perform. It's not just about the political speech that he would make from many of the podiums or would make in the House on american Activities Committee where he was being uh, harangued and interviewed. It would happen in the form of music. And so these things happening at the very same time is very interesting as being shared between two people who thought very highly of each other. Well, with the, and, you know, and I hesitate to use this word because I don't think it's the right word, but with the diversification in what we're seeing on the opera stage in terms of who we're seeing sing, and we've got all of these amazing people of color who are now singing roles of all different types that maybe, you know, were not available to them previously. And just in preparing for this interview, I, you know, was reading all these narratives of all of these people who said, well, I wasn't right for this role and I wasn't right for that role. And and I think there's still a lot of controversy about these topics. Do you think that we're moving in the right direction? Do you think that there are still things that could be could be adapted, could be changed? I mean, obviously that's the case, but what do you think we're getting right and where do you think that we still have room to grow? I mean, I do think that, again, with the move toward telling stories on the opera stage that are being drawn directly from these contentious racial histories, I think that's a huge move forward. And being able to fund and employ women and people of color to compose and stage these productions is really crucial, right? Because it's both about kind of the casting and this move toward colorblind casting, which I know is happening throughout theater. Um, all of that is really significant and necessary. Those 
people whom we see on stage begin to set our imaginaries. And it's important that we begin and continue to challenge those, even seeing, right, the recent announcement of having cast a Black Ariel for the remake of Little Mermaid, (laughs) right? right? Those things matter. But we also have to have people behind the stage who are doing that work and who are also underrepresented peoples. The people who are setting the scene for us being able to imagine these alternatives is really, really crucial. So to have women and people of color who are writing the scripts, who are the dramaturgs, who are the composers, who are the musicians, all from every level on up, it needs to actually be a a very kind of profound commitment to representing these communities and making sure the voices are as diverse as possible. But I think there are still ways in which the canon restricts that, right? That we want to continue staging these productions that we already know. These productions that are um, famously or infamously um, kind of received by audiences that we know will draw. We have to be mindful of those things. Are we staging them um, in ways that are going to be capacious enough to adjust casting or even to begin to play or experiment with some of the composition? Are we allowing for that capaciousness in these restagings of pieces that were written like La Boheme more than a century ago? Are we doing colorblind casting? Are we inviting audiences, underrepresented audiences, into the theater to watch these productions, to make sense of them? Are we having talkbacks? Are we um, encourage? Are we giving people a reading list to actually expand their thinking about what they're seeing and hearing? I think all of those things matter. I mean, it's been instructive to me to read other scholars who focus on opera like Naomi Andre, who discusses a scene of seeing the opera Otello in 2015, and they're still wearing blackface. I think that's hugely significant and it's devastating for our ability to actually understand opera as an evolving, capacious, progressive form. Um, We can't have blackface anymore. That's just an impossible hurdle to overcome. It's just impossible. Um, It's unredeemable. And so I think that there are still things that need to be kind of strategically addressed but also these other forms that we're seeing this more experimental, open, investigative process by which people are coming to newer operas, I think needs to be more wholly embraced. We need to see more stagings of the Central Park Five. We need to see more opportunities for new composers to come to the fore, residencies, all of these things that will make it possible for people to create, because in that creation, we start to imagine new futures. And it's those steps, right? The the slow steps and the progression within those areas where there are new dialogues and new conversations and and places to make these changes. And is that part of what I just I wanted to return back to Lava Wem, is that part of what makes it a transmutable thing is that there there aren't necessarily, I'm sorry, there aren't necessarily races in La Boheme, unlike some of Puccini's other works, you know, that have this sort of exoticism, orientalism, things like that. And it's not quite so far removed from, from the composer and what, you know, his background was. Is that part of what makes it changeable for different locations and different settings. Yeah, I definitely think that that's part of what makes it adaptable in that way. Um, I think that the types of stories that the opera is telling, because you don't have to negotiate Orientalism, because you don't have to negotiate some of these other 
um, restrictive, damaging, racist, racist formations that exist in the opera, um, there's a possibility for then making it one's own in a different type of way. The question is, are we going to allow that in the most extreme ways? Are we going to allow people to make sense of this story in ways that may not fit our particular understanding, that may not um, fit our relationship to the form or our relationship to the composer, right? And I think that the traditions that the opera world, that the fine art world, that many of these kind of artistic communities still hold to be valuable, sometimes are at odds with people's best investments or, or imaginations around what these pieces could be and could mean. And so we have to, I think, be really clear about our relationship to the form and our investments in it. Can we actually let go of our relationship to whiteness as universal in order to make space for other bodies to tell these stories, other communities, other um, perspectives to be represented here. And I think that's the crucial challenge because the story should give us that opportunity, but it's us who interpret, who begin to restrict that in some respects. So the question is, are, will we let it be all that it could be? Do you think that opera is the... is a good art form for that kind of movement. I mean, many years ago, I would hear, oh, you can't take something at, at X tempo, or you can't do this at this, you know, and it's never done this way. And I don't know that we're still having those conversations, but is is that the right place to move, given that it's it's a moving art, it can be changed a little bit every time, unlike, you know, something static, like a, like a, a portrait, you know, you're mm -hmm. looking at something that it cannot be changed. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at something that has to be reimagined and recreated every time, does that lend itself to these kinds of changes? Absolutely. The liveness of the operatic experience makes a tremendous difference in our ability to actually make it mean something new and to create of it a living document. And I think that's what's most important is that we see it not as something that's calcified and already formed when we bring it to the stage. It's something that lives through that staging. And so if we're inventive enough, if we're open enough to its possibilities of continuing to live and change, then it can easily be that on the stage. And that's important. I think one of the things, though, that needs to be considered in relationship to opera performance is making the entire enterprise open enough that we're drawing people to the stage who are able to receive and welcome those types of roles? Are our conservatories open enough to train singers in this tradition who do not fit the normal mold, right? So there are many steps in front of getting to the stage that actually will make the stage different. We have to be welcoming more of these composers, more new singers who are coming from untraditional backgrounds, and we have to make it welcoming to them in a particular type of way and, and, and pique curiosity in them such that they want to be pursuing these forms. So I think it's a both and. If we change what's happening on the stage, people will be drawn into the pipeline. If we change the pipeline, then the stage will also change. So we have to be working at it from both of those ends in order to make these newer visions possible. And do you think that these are things that we're, you're seeing happen? Are these happening now? Is it something that is part of a of a longer time frame? Is it just, you know, we've got a, the grassroots up kind of? 
Absolutely. It's definitely a longer timeline because I think the best effort at it changing is happening at the local level, right? There's not going to be any national, certainly no international policy by which people are moving toward a shared agenda. I think it's happening conservatory by conservatory, company by company. And I think the more, though, that those types of efforts can be amplified and announced, the more challenge then it puts in front of these other localized communities to keep pace or to exceed, right, to actually be pushing the envelope constantly about the people we're welcoming into these productions, welcoming into training, the composers that we're seeking out, the audiences that we're seeking out. So as it happens at the local level, I think to actually spotlight those efforts really will make a huge difference because then it begins to put a different type of challenge in front of these other spaces and communities. Well, I want to thank you for coming in today. It's been a really great pleasure to talk to you. I've been a fan for a while, so thank you. And um, I'm really looking forward to your talk at our Offer for Educators coming up. Thank you again for taking this time. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.